Thank you so much. Well, there's no one like him, right? Let's see that again this morning as you turn your Bibles to Gospel of Luke chapter 10. If you'll turn there and we will take a fresh look at our wonderful hero, the King of the Ages, the Lord Jesus Christ. So turn to Luke chapter 10. We're continuing our journey through this incredible gospel given to us by the Lord. We come to a very familiar passage of Scripture. Many of us in this room have known this since our earliest childhood days. But there's always something fresh and new, is there not, in the living Word of God. And so I want us to ask the Lord to give us a fresh understanding and personal application to what He has in His Word. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading verse 25 and read down through verse 37, and if you would take your Bible, and if you are able, please, would you stand, and you that are at home, if you are able, please stand with us as we read together God's Word, this amazing passage from the Bible. Luke 10, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by a chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. My mother and my father were very wise people. The older I get, the more I recognize how wise they really were. I remember being very amazed at how much my mom and dad learned while I was at college. <laughs> but my mom and dad, for all of their wisdom, they were not highly educated people. Uh, my father Lost his mother when he was 10 years of age. My grandmother was working in the garden and she slumped over from a massive stroke when she was just 43 years of age. And my dad, needing to help his dad now around the farm, that was the end of his education. Maybe three or four years altogether. My mom was a great student. She loved school. 
She went to that little country school up in the hills of Kentucky, uh, first through eighth grade. And back then you had to take a test to go on to high school to make sure you could make the grade to get into high school. And she took the test and scored second highest out of the entire county. But because of the deep poverty of my mom's family and because they lived seven miles from the high school and because her older brothers and sisters had married, she had to stay and take care of the little brothers and sisters and take care of her very ill mother. And so my mom's education uh, ended at the age of uh, eighth grade. She actually went on and went to eighth grade again the second time just because she enjoyed learning. But she never went to high school. But my mom was the the most self-educated person I've ever known. She was a voracious reader, reading constantly. And the book she read above all books was the Bible. I know that for over 40 consecutive years, she read it through every year. She was a voracious reader, as I said. She taught me and my brother Lonnie to be readers, encouraged us to do that, and she highly valued education, and she had very high standards. You just have to understand that for my mother, a C equaled an F. Now, she did that because she told us and she knew that we were capable of an A or a B, and so a C, doing less than your best, was like an F. (laughs) So you can imagine in my junior year in high school, when I came home with a report card that said I had received a D in geometry. And I was about 17 years of age, about six foot three or four, And that meant nothing to my mother. (laughs) She wanted to clarify my high school education purposes because I thought I was majoring in sports and Susan. (laughs) (laughs) Now, geometry, it just frustrated me. I'd always done well in math. Two A's and algebra one, algebra two, but... Geometry frustrated me, and the reason it frustrated me is because in my laziness, I could get the right answer, but I used the wrong solution to get the answer. And somehow my geometry teacher didn't find that acceptable. Yeah, I had the right answer, but the way I went about the solution was wrong. And so, I was totally right and completely wrong. And my grade showed it, and my mother found it quite unacceptable. (laughs) And I changed that. Now, I say that because that's what you see in our text today in this story. You see the story of a man who's a timeless illustration of someone failing the math of eternal life. Failing the math of eternal life. Now, here's what makes it such a tragedy, my friends. He is totally right. And he is completely wrong. His answer, his theological answer is totally right, but he is completely wrong when it comes to eternal life. And when you're wrong on eternal life, no matter what else might be right in your life, you are wrong, wrong forever. It's a tragedy because it continues on to this very day. Because it specializes in those who are religious. It is not the pagans who fall prey to this. It is the people who are very knowledgeable of the Bible. People who are very devout in their 
practice of religion. People who actually can quote very accurately the Bible. And yet, they're completely wrong when it comes to eternal life. Now, I want you to notice three things here this morning. First thing I want you to see is that there is here in this story that we're very familiar with a prideful interrogation about God's law. A prideful, a pride-filled interrogation about God's law. And I use the word interrogation rather than conversation because really this isn't a conversation, this is an interrogation. This man is a lawyer who approaches Jesus, and you need to be very clear, a lawyer in this context is not someone who is an expert in the civil law. This is someone who is an expert in the law of the word. This is a theological expert. He is an expert in the law, the word of God. But with all his knowledge, he has no interest in growing in knowledge. You know what he wants to do? He wants to show his knowledge. Now, it's important that we recognize this man truly possessed knowledge. This man knew his Bible of his day better than anyone in this room, including the one speaking to you this morning. His Bible was what we would know as the Old Testament and he knew lengthy passages of it by heart and he could tell you the contents of every chapter of all the books of the law and the prophets. He possessed knowledge, but he didn't possess understanding. He has been, he has been, listen carefully, educated beyond his understanding and that can happen to a lot of people educated beyond their understanding some people die by degrees think about that he is a wise fool he is wise considered to be wise he is approached from by people about his wisdom of the bible he can cite it quote it interpret it but he is a fool when it comes to knowing the God of the Bible and there's all the difference in the world isn't there in knowing the word of God and knowing the God of the word just because you know a book doesn't mean you know the author he's completely right and he's totally wrong now how is this demonstrated? How do we know this man is so wrong even though he's totally right? Well, it comes out in one word. The one word is this, self. Self. It is his view of himself that makes him totally wrong even though he's completely right in his quoting of the Bible. There's three characteristics about this man we're going to notice this morning. He is self-focused, he is self-righteous, and because he's self-focused and self-righteous, he is therefore self-deceived. And that's the worst kind of deception, is when you deceive yourself. Not the devil, but you deceive yourself. This man is, first of all, self-focused. That's his whole motivation here. His motivation is self-focused. Notice it says, look at verse number 25, Behold, that means suddenly, out of nowhere, right in the midst of Jesus' teaching. As a matter of fact, if this is chronological, Jesus has just been rejoicing. He is exulting in the Holy Spirit, rejoicing in what his father has shown his disciples, and bam, this man stands up. He stands up and interrupts Jesus' praise and worship. And he stands up to test him. You see that? Verse 25. He 
did it to test him. This is a theological ambush. That's what's going on here. This man is out to ambush Jesus Nazareth and to show that he knows more about the Bible than this young upstart rabbi from Galilee. Now notice, the method of his test is to go to his area of expertise. Isn't it interesting? We never want to test people on something we don't know a thing about. His area of testing Jesus was in his area of expertise. He had no concern about failing the very thought that he could fail in understanding the Bible. No. And so notice, this self-focused man expresses his self-righteousness. Just even his question unveils his heart. What does he say? Look at verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do? To inherit eternal life. Now the question itself is the epitome of self-righteous religion. The man's question grows out of the soil of his heart. Which is a self-righteous religion. Notice what he says. He says, good teacher, what must I I, he starts with himself, not what do I need, what can you give me. He doesn't start with mercy, he starts with himself. What must I do? Notice, what must I do? He has a merit system. To him, salvation is not about grace, it's not about mercy, it's about earning God's favor. What must I do? And then notice he mixes works and grace, even in his question. What must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Notice how he mixes works plus his understanding, which is a false understanding of grace. What must I do? That's a word of work. That I might inherit. Inherit has nothing to do with work. It has all to do with being a part of the family. You don't earn an inheritance. You don't work for an inheritance. It's given to you by the father or the mother. He's mixing here works. What must I do in order that I may inherit eternal life? And notice, it's all about personal achievement. What must I do that I may inherit eternal life? For him, it's all about personal achievement. This man believes that he can meet whatever the requirement is. Whatever God expects, whatever God wants... So that I can be deemed worthy of entering his eternal kingdom. Tell me what needs to be done. And I'm quite certain I can do it. That's this whole man's attitude. And that's the reason his third characteristic. He is self-deceived. He's self-motivated. He is self-focused. He's self-deceived. He is totally misguided about himself. And who he is in his nature. And he's totally misguided about who God is. And what God's standard is. He's completely deceived. He has deceived himself. That he, by his effort, out of his condition, can earn the favor of God and be accepted into God's kingdom when he dies. He's completely self-deceived about God and his law. And so guess where Jesus meets him? He meets this man on what this man thinks is his home field. Home court advantage. God and his law. I know all about God. 
I know all about his law. And Jesus is going to see about that. Verse 26, so Jesus asked him. He says to him, verse 26, what is written in the law? Isn't it interesting? Jesus believed that the way to salvation is in the law of God. A lot of people don't believe that, that are even in church today. But Jesus believed it. He believed the Bible was the word of God. He said, what is written? How do you read it? That is, how do you understand it? How do you interpret it? So Jesus believes in the inspiration of the the word. And he's asking this man for his interpretation of the word. How do you interpret this? And listen to this expert. Oh, man, is he ready. He is a sharp one. He's got the word at his fingertips and Jesus asks the question and immediately the man answers with an arrogant knowing smile no doubt even as he quotes the word of God verse 27 he said to him you shall love the Lord your God with your heart with all your soul with your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself this man answers Jesus question right off the top of his head and literally because he's a lawyer he's answering right off the forehead the front of his head because most of the lawyers in that day would have a verse of scripture in a little box leather box worn like a headband and inside of that little box was a verse of scripture known as the Shema. The very first statement any Jewish boy or girl ever learned. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. This man not only had the word of God on the top of his head, he had it on the front of his head. But it wasn't in his heart. See, you can have the word of God in your head. But the word of God in your head has got to get in your heart. He even adds the divine injunction. And love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he doesn't give a half answer. This is like, boom. Complete, total. Love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He is, as a lawyer, brilliantly summarizing the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are divided, not five and five. The Ten Commandments are divided four and six. The first four has to do with your relationship with God. Numbers 5 through 10 have to do with your relationship with people. And the fifth commandment is the Lynch commandment, which connects you with God and with people, which is to honor your father and your mother, who stand in, in your, before you in the place of the Lord with His authority, and they're your first human relationship. And so the whole law, all the Ten Commandments, are summarized in what this man says brilliantly. Love the Lord your God, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Leviticus 19, 18. The lawyer's totally right. And he's completely wrong. You see, he needs a revelation. And he's come just to the person who can give him a revelation. Somebody who not only knows the Bible, but he knows the author of the Bible. Matter of fact, he doesn't even understand that this man is standing before the God of the Bible. Jesus said to him, 
you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Yes, you're right. Do this. But he doesn't say do, meaning once in a while. It's present tense. You be doing this. You constantly be doing this. You constantly be loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And you constantly be loving your neighbor as yourself. And you will inherit eternal life. You'll live. You see what he's done? He's just called the man's bluff. He's called this man's bluff. Because this man, in reality, does not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He doesn't love his neighbor of himself. If he loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, he would love Jesus. And if he loved Jesus, he wouldn't try to trick and humiliate Jesus. He doesn't know God at all. And he doesn't love. But he needs to see this. It's so tragic. It's so tragic. But it's the mic drop moment here. (laughs) Boom. Jesus shows this man with his own words. You don't measure up to what you just quoted. And so what was the man's response? What did this lawyer do when he didn't measure up to God's standard? Guess what he revealed about himself? He tried to pull the standard down so that he could meet it. Rather than maximizing God's standard, when he knew he couldn't meet God's standard and wasn't, he tried to pull God's standard down to a level he could meet it. That's the reason he asked this question, verse 29. And he said to him, Who is my neighbor? Why did he do this? Seeking to justify himself. He can't live up to. He cannot justify himself by what he just quoted. Loving the Lord and his God with all his heart and soul, his mind and strength, his neighbor as himself. So there's got to be a loophole here. Now, yeah, I'm not that good. I'm not perfect. Somehow I've got to measure up. So what do I do? Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll redefine God's word. To make it mean what I want it to mean. And so he says, and who is my neighbor? You see what's inferred there, friends? Do you understand what's insinuated? The question itself insinuates there are some people who are not my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? You don't ask that question unless you think there are some people who don't qualify to be called your neighbor. Therefore, you don't have to love them. So he redefines neighbor. He says there, by implication, there are non-neighbors. <laughs> and what he insinuates here, listen carefully, There are racially those people who are not my neighbor. And there are religiously people that are not my neighbor. Because this scribe, along with all the rabbis of Jesus' day, along with all the history of rabbinical teacher teaching, when the Bible said, love your neighbor as yourself, when God said that, they believed that meant Jewish people. You must love your neighbor who is Jewish. But anyone outside of your race, anybody that's outside of your religion, you are superior to them and you do not have to love them. So tragic. And what's more tragic is that spirit continues among religious people to this very day. We limit boundaries of who neighbor means. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
we, we limit God's law. We limit God's love. We pull it down to where we can fulfill our definition of God's standard. What does neighbor mean to hundreds of thousands of people in church today? I'll tell you what it means. Neighbor means people who look like you. Neighbor means people who live like you. They don't live any way you wouldn't live. Their lifestyle choices, their identification of themselves is just like you. They act like you. They worship like you. You don't have to consider a neighbor somebody who worships a God other than your God. Your neighbor certainly can't be somebody who worships a false God. Your neighbor also can't be somebody who worships a true God in a way that you don't worship Him. And most of all, it's very clear, your neighbor would not be somebody who doesn't vote like you. That is the religion of countless people in churches today, some in this room and some watching. You love the neighbor who looks like you, lives like you, acts like you, worships like you, votes like you. That's your neighbor. That's tragic. It seems to me there's a verse in the Bible that says, For God so loved the world. Jesus used this lawgiver's lawyer scripture to quote that he quoted to receive, to show his self-deception. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus is so wonderful. He's so kind and gracious, but he's so brilliant. What does he do? Oh, you want to talk about neighbor now? I thought we were talking about loving God and his word. You want to talk about neighbor? Okay, let's talk about neighbor. And so what does Jesus do? He tells a story about somebody of another race and another religion. Do you see that? The story you have loved, many of you all your life, the hero of the story, humanly, is the man of another race and another religion. And it's a timeless illustration of God's love. Jesus tells this story. It's so familiar. He talks about going down from the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everybody listening knew that road. There's only one road. It's just 18 miles. Did you know that? It's just 18 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. But when you're in Jerusalem, you're 2,575 feet above sea level. You go 18 miles and you're 900 feet below sea level in Jericho. The lowest inhabited city on the face of the earth is Jericho. The road drops 3,400 feet in 18 miles in a Judean wilderness. And the road is surrounded by cliffs pocked with caves and caverns. Perfect place for the ages. It's been the perfect place even to this very day. It's a dangerous road where thieves and vagabonds wait. Come and rob and pillage, murder. The regular occurrence. So Jesus tells a story. Everybody gets it. But notice it's about four men. Four men are in the story. First man is a victim. He's just going about his business. He's going from Jer on the road to Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets attacked by marauding thieves. They rip his clothes off, steal everything he has, beat him within an inch of his life. They leave him there to die. But in Jesus' story, two 
men come along. And these would be very respected men. And they would be the expected heroes. One is a priest of the priestly class. He's coming from the temple. He's on his way to Jericho because Jericho is one of the priestly cities. And he's going back to his hometown after serving his nearly month-long duties in the temple. And he's going back. He wants to get home. And he comes across this man. He's coming straight from the house of God and comes upon this man sees him and passes by, not close, but way on the other side. Shortly later, there's a Levite comes. Who are the Levites? They are the tribe of Levi. They are not the priest, but of the same tribe. They are the workers in the, in the house of God. The priests are like the pastors, the religious leaders, these are the workers in the house of God. And he comes by and sees the man. And he passes by on the other side. Now why? Why would these two men do this? Why, why would two men who you most expect to have the love of God in their heart coming straight from the house of God, coming up on a man in desperate need of help, and they would go by on the other side? Why? Why could they possibly do this? Let me tell you, in my humble but accurate opinion, why? Their religion got in the way. You see, their religion taught if they go and touch this man and he's bleeding or if he's dead, his blood will make them ceremonially unclean or if he's dead, just touching their body will make them ceremonially unclean and they won't be able to do their duties. They will dirty themselves with this man and they will not be able to carry out their religion. Now imagine this. The obstacle to them showing love is their religion. Their religion has made them unloving. They've taken a religion which calls upon the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Father to the fatherless. Protector of widows and orphans. And they have made his religion the obstacle that keeps them from helping someone nearly dead in their very path. That's what religion does. False, not false religion. True, biblically accurate religion. But without the heart of God. Fourth man comes along. You talk about the least likely. You talk about the anti-hero. Jesus says the man's a Samaritan. You don't understand what this meant? Jesus uses a man of another race, another religion, a, a, a man of a people group hated by the Jews for 500 years who have a mixed race background, Jew and pagan, and have come up with their own mixed religion, which mixes together paganism and the truth of God. And they have even constructed their own temple to vie with the temple in Jerusalem, except the Maccabee brothers tore it down 140 years ago. This man comes by, and sees the need and he's touched with compassion. And he ministers to him. Friend, you got to understand. Today, this would be like this. And I say it with sincerity. It'd be like saying this. There's a man lying on the road. Baptist preacher went by on the other side. 
Baptist Sunday school teacher went by on the other side. But a Muslim man from Saudi Arabia who's coming from worship on Friday in the mosque sees the man and has compassion on him. That might even just come almost close to what Jesus is telling here. What is Jesus saying? What is the point here? The man sacrifices. He sacrifices his time. He sacrifices his money. He sacrifices with effort. He, he, this is not on his schedule. He didn't get up and see on his day planner, help man beside the road. No. This is inconvenient. It's dangerous. It's sacrificial. And it's also loving. What's Jesus' point? Listen, don't miss the point. Here's the point. The law of God is love. The law of God is love. And here's the rest of the story. Love is merciful. What is mercy? It's pity in action. Mercy is not when you feel sorry for someone. Mercy is when you feel someone else's need and then you act at a cost of yourself to do something about it. Love is merciful. And mercy is pity and in action. This is the king's commandment. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Now let's make sure we're very clear here. I want to say something and we'll be gone in just a moment. But be very clear because you could misunderstand this entire message. This is what the love of God produces. This is not what produces the love of God. You don't do this to get God to love you. That is not what this is about. This is not about earning God's favor, earning God's love. The message is this. This is what love does. Love shows mercy. And mercy is pity for your fellow man that takes action. And here's the reality. If you say you love God, but you are not loving and merciful to everybody, you don't know the love of God. It doesn't matter your religion. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you've been in. It doesn't matter what ABF you're in. It doesn't matter how many times you have memorized Scripture. It doesn't matter how well you know this book. If you do not love other people, who are whoever they are, you do not have the love of God in your heart. You need to be born again. That's what it means. Because this is the miracle of the new birth. The love of God is poured out in your heart by the Holy Spirit. By faith in Jesus. You don't just get your name written in the Lamb's book of life. You get a new heart. The love of God has come into your heart. You, a lost, hell-deserving sinner. You, the man on the road. You, lost. A moment from eternity, the Son of God, the Good Samaritan, came to you, wrapped His arms around you, loved you with His own precious blood, paid your debt, took you to the Father's inn to provide for you, meeting your every need, 
And when you know that, you've experienced that, you cannot help but love people. And dear friends, do not be self-deceived. A person who is not merciful has never experienced the mercy of God. My heart is full of fear for people that have heard me preach five years, ten years, fifteen years. They know the Bible up and back and forward. But they don't love their neighbor. And they get mad when you talk about it. You want to talk about race? Oh, bringing politics in the church, aren't we, Sam? Want to talk about the eternal kingdom that never ends? Well, Sam, I think you need to be very clear about the election and its significance. Talk about someone's life snuffed out on the streets of Minneapolis or Kenosha, tracked down in Brunswick, Georgia. Well, I just don't agree with that. <laughs> I think we all blow these Muslims up. These people who perform abortions, fire of God needs to come down on them. Don't we understand spiritual warfare, someone says? Sam, don't you get spiritual warfare? Yes, I understand spiritual warfare. And the greatest warfare is deceiving your own heart when you don't love people that you do love God. Say, Sam, I think, I think the coronavirus got to your brain. <laughs> oh, it's much worse than that. You see, it's not the coronavirus. It's the coronavictus. It's the Lord who reigns, who conquered my rebel heart and took the hatred and anger and the ridicule and the pride and yes, I still struggle with it, but the Lord Jesus Christ loved me and He gave Himself for me. And I've never lost the wonder of it all. And I don't understand how anybody could. It's not my job to cause you to doubt your salvation. But dear friend, A religion that won't cause you to cross any boundary in the name of Jesus. A religion that causes you to create a classification of people who are not your neighbor. A religion that allows you to ask the question, Am I my brother's keeper? And not know the answer, Yes, you are. That is not a religion that's going to take your soul to glory. Friend, I tell you, who's the hero of this story? It's not the Good Samaritan. The hero of this story is the king of the ages who came to us as the Good Samaritan, right? And met us not at our best, met us at our worst. And met us in our self-righteousness. We are the lawyer. And we're the mess in the middle of the road at the same time. And Jesus loves us. And he gave himself for us. And friend, listen. When you put down your arguments. When you recognize that you don't have the love of God in your heart. 
and you don't measure up to His standard, and that your religion has not made you right with God, you're not far from the kingdom. And you cry out as a lost sinner for, to the living Savior, I want you to know Jesus said it is finished. And what He did was enough. And He'll save you to the uttermost. But you've got to come without one shred of merit, but casting your soul on the mercy of the Good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you do that today? Let me pray. Father, I pray for my own heart. Search it, O oh Lord. Forgive me for my calloused soul. my prideful arrogance because for this day Lord Jesus only in you is my salvation my hope is only in you and Lord I need a baptism of your love and we need it as your people we need it in our hearts oh God break our heart for what breaks your heart Expand our heart to reach to all. Believing that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom we are chief. And believing that through us He can love others in His name. Oh Lord, I pray right now that men, women, boys and girls will flee from a refuge in righteous living, a refuge in religion, a refuge in rit ritual, but may they flee to Jesus, the Redeemer, and lay hold of Christ and be born from above. And remind us, Lord, as we go, that people need the Lord. And all God's people said...